0: Section 13 of Guelphs and Ghibellines by Oscar Browning. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 10. The Black Death. Louis of Hungary. Genoa and Venice. Marino Faliero. Part 2. Genoa was at this time suffering severely from famine, and she saw no other sign of safety than to submit herself to the hands of the visconti family the archbishop giovanni of milan the spinola of the ghibelline faction who possessed the passes of the apennines leading into the lombard plain had long been in correspondence with the visconti the territory of that house extended from alessandria on the west to lunigiana on the southeast. giovanni was the patron of all the best culture of his time He was an intimate friend of the poet petrarch and he appointed a committee of six two theologians two men of science and two men of letters to write a commentary on the divina commedia it was perhaps well for the freedom of italy that the tyrants of the lombard plain lived in constant jealousy of each other the rise of the visconti rendered all-powerful by the acquisition of genoa roused the carrara of padua The Della Scala of Verona, the Este of Ferrara, the Gonzaghi of Mantua, and the Manfredi of Faenza to join Venice against them. They all looked to the assistance of the Emperor Charles IV of Bohemia, who was preparing to march into Italy. Giovanni Visconti sent Guglielmo Pallavicini to Genoa as his representative. The representatives of Genoa took the oath of fidelity at Milan in February 1354. This arrangement, however, did not last long. In November 1355 the nobles were driven out and the doge of Genoa, Simone Boccanera, restored. The doge of Venice, Andrea D'Andolo, died in September 1354. He had governed the Republic for twelve years with remarkable wisdom and moderation. He was succeeded by Marino Faliero, who has left a name of sinister omen in the long line of venetian sovereigns faliero was a man of great wealth and was at this time seventy-six years of age he heard of his election at verona as he was returning from an embassy to the court of avignon he entered in triumph on october fifteenth the first weeks of his dukedom were signalised by disaster after a vain attempt on the part of the Visconti to make peace, the Genoese braced themselves for a new effort. They placed thirty-three galleys under the command of Paganino Doria, the Venetians met them with thirty-five galleys under Niccolo Pisani. The loss of the town of Parenza and terror lest the Genoese should attack the capital had caused the death of Dondolo. Pisano was recalled, but on his way home he put into the harbour of Portolungo on the coast of Laconia. Here, almost on the very spot where a crushing blow had been inflicted by the Athenians upon the Spartans in the Peloponnesian War, Doria pursued him, and on November third succeeded in bringing on a battle which resulted in the entire defeat of the Venetians. Doria returned in triumph to Genoa, Bringing with him the Venetian admiral with all his fleet and six thousand eight hundred and seventy prisoners, the defeat of Grimaldi at Loyera was amply revenged. The result of this battle was first a suspension of arms and then a definite peace. The main conditions were that the Genoese and Venetians were to restore each other's prisoners, and the Venetians were not to sail to Rome for three years also that no Genoese ship was to pass into the Adriatic, and no Venetian ship to pass between Porto Pisano and Marseille. As a guarantee for the observance of the conditions, Venice and Genoa were each to deposit a hundred thousand gold florins in Siena, Pisa, Florence, or Perugia. The treaty was dated June 1, 1355. Before this treaty was concluded, a terrible conspiracy had been detected and punished at venice the conspiracy of marino faliero may or may not have had a romantic origin it is certain that its real cause lay in the fundamental character of venetian institutions we have seen how the government of the republic came gradually to be confined to a close oligarchy how the great council usurped the power which belonged to the people on one side and to the doge on the other how the great council itself was confined to a comparatively few families and how the power of the great council was circumscribed by the creation of a political inquisition in the shape of the council of ten lord beaconsfield is believed to have invented the term our venetian constitution in speaking of the english government meaning to imply that the parliament or the chambers as perhaps he would have called them, have curtailed the authority of the sovereign and absorbed the political influence of the people, and that the Parliament itself has fallen into the hands of certain privileged families, namely the Whig families of the Revolution of 1688. It is not certain what N. Folliero had in view. The idea has been generally accepted, founded on the evidence of Matteo Villani that he desired to establish a popular government recent writers have thought it more probable that he wished to establish a despotism similar to those existing in the other towns of italy certain it is that he wished to overthrow the exclusive authority of the nobles one of his principal accomplices was bertuccio isdraeli a distinguished sailor and a man of the people it may be that the recent war against genoa had given an impulse to democracy just as at athens the democratic sailors took a position of greater influence when the fleet had been brought into prominence on the other hand the doge was connected with the most aristocratic families of venice the republic was now extending its empire on terra firma and had to fear the rivalry of the tyrants of the lombard plain the este gonzaghi scaligeri and visconti it might be the most patriotic course in the pressing dangers of the state to consolidate power into a single hand both views are indeed reconcilable we see in the republic of holland that the people were always ready to support the authority of the stadtholders against the oligarchy of the rich merchants faliero might believe that he was acting a patriotic part and that in shaking off the thraldom of the nobles He was not only true to the history of his country, but was taking the best course to preserve it from imminent danger. These questions will probably never be settled, for the volume of the archives of the Council of Ten, which is said to have contained the full account of Faliero's crime, has been lost beyond recovery. However this may be, a rising was planned for April fifteenth, 1355. The signal for action was to be the sound of the great bell of St. Mark's, which was never rung except by the express order of the doge. A cry was to be raised, that the fleet of Genoa was before the town. The nobles were to be cut down as they entered the square of St. Mark. Amidst shouts of Viva il Popolo, Marino Faliero was to be proclaimed Principe. The plot was revealed the day before that fixed for its execution by one bertrando of bergamo who was not in the conspiracy but had been ordered to execute some minor portion of the plan he told what he knew to niccolo leone one of the council of ten who immediately informed the doge there was no suspicion that the doge himself was concerned in the plot but faliero showed very little presence of mind he disputed some of the evidence said that he already knew about parts of it, and gradually inspired Leone with a suspicion which he did not before possess. The conspirators were arrested in their houses, and guards were posted to prevent the ringing of the great bell of St. Mark. The conspirators, when put to the torture, all accused the doge of complicity in the scheme, and he did not deny his guilt. The council of ten did not dare to try him by themselves, but summoned twenty nobles to act with them, forming a body which was afterwards made permanent under the name of Junta or Zanta. Faliero was condemned to death and was executed on April seventeenth, 1345, in the courtyard of the palace. The gates communicating with the square of St. Mark were closed for fear of a rising among the people. But immediately after the execution, one of the council of ten appeared on the balcony of the palace, holding the blood-stained sword which had done its work. The gates were thrown open, and the people saw the head of the traitor rolling in its blood. In the great hall of the ducal palace, where the portraits of the long line of doges form a cornice under the roof, there is a single gap. A black curtain covers the space where a portrait should be, and on it is written, marina falieri decapitati pro criminibus such is the story of the victim whom byron has immortalised whatever judgment we pass upon his enterprise its failure had the effect of riveting more closely on doge and people the fetters of a narrow and suspicious oligarchy conspiracy rarely succeeds and is never justified except by success and of section 13.